welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. I'm your host and happy National Girls and Women in Sports Day, y'all. Today marks the 33rd annual National Girls and Women in Sports Day, and that's hashtag NGWSD for those of you on the Twitterverse. For more than three decades, this celebration has empowered women and girls to get moving, reap the benefits of physical activity, and push past their limits both in sports and in life. The confidence, strength, and character gained through sports and physical activity are the very tools girls need to become strong leaders in their own lives and in the world. There are events all over the country today and really until March um, with regards to NGWSD. So check out ngwsd.org slash events. For those of you in the Tampa area, and I mentioned this in the interview, there's an event at Emily Arena tonight, February 6, 2019, <laughs> just in case those of you in the future listening. Um, and it should be great. I know Donna Orender is going to be there, one of our former guests. I'm guessing that Claire Lessinger is going to be there as well, also one of our former guests. Tampa Bay Sports Commission is putting it on in conjunction with the lightning, I believe. And it's um, beyond the barriers is what it's being called. So just Google it um, and go if you can. Unfortunately, I won't be there, but I know it will be an amazing event. This year's NGWSD theme is Lead Her Forward to honor the many ways that sports push girls and women to achieve excellence and realize their boundless potential. The Women's Sports Foundation applauds the vital role played by the individuals and organizations championing championing girls and women in sports. The advocates seeking to protect Title IX and advance gender equity, the athletes using their powerful platform to inspire greatness, and the coaches working daily to unlock girls' limitless capabilities. This year, NGWSD celebrates all the girls and women across the nation leading us forward into a bright future. And on that note, our guest today is Sarah Axelson, Senior Director of Advocacy at the Women's Sports Foundation. Sarah was an athlete all through college and wasn't quite sure what to do near graduation when she was alerted to an internship by a friend. She's been with the Women's Sports Foundation ever since. We obviously talk about her career, of course, but we also talk a lot about what WSF does and how people can get involved. Two things we talk about in depth are NGWSD um, and the various events, and then the newly announced Scott Pioli and Family Fund for Women Football Coaches and Scouts. And that's an endowed fund um, uh, to try and build our pipeline. So I really hope you enjoy this chat with Sarah Axelson. Hey, Sarah, welcome to LTPF. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you, as you know, um, because I've been wanting to get somebody from the Women's Sports Foundation on our podcast for quite some time now because, duh, Women's Sports Foundation. Yeah, well, here I am, and I know we have a a whole bunch of other folks from our senior leadership team who are ready and uh, able to take some interviews in the near future as well. So hopefully you'll hear from a number of us moving forward. Yeah, that will be so great. And I think my listeners will love that. Um, Let's start at the beginning, which is, you know, where I always start. How did you fall in love with sports? So um, I was always, you know, an active kid, always out there, you know, running bases, riding my bike, things like that. And so my parents definitely had um, my sister and I both in some, you know, a number of different sports, but softball was really the one that I 
um, really excelled in and played for, you know, the length of my childhood. I kind of went in and out of other sports like basketball, um, and volleyball and things like that. But softball was the one that I stuck with and, um, played that from childhood through high school and then in college. Um, and you know, still active today as an adult, not necessarily softball, but you know, a little bit of beach volleyball in a, in a recreational sense with some friends, um, and, and other things to keep myself busy and active. When you, um, were a kid, did, and you were playing, you know, through like middle school and high school, did you Mm -hmm. specialize early or were you kind of in middle school and high school doing a bunch of different team sports? I mean, I don't think it was an intentional specialization, but I probably played multiple sports through like middle school age. And then once I got to high school, it was really just softball that I was playing at, uh, you know, in a competitive sense. Um, certainly, you know, goofing around with friends and things like that with multiple sports. But in terms of organized uh, competitive sports opportunity, it really was mainly softball once I got to high school. Did you know when you were, you know, in high school, your junior or senior trying to figure out like, I don't know, th- that really dumb question we ask kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And <laughs> yep. as as Michelle Obama has said in her book, which I haven't read yet, but I've been listening to her Oprah Super Soul Sunday conversation, <laughs> which is great. Um, yes, I don't know. I'm weird. Uh, you know, it's such a, a terrible question, right? Because it's not like it's a finite thing, right? You don't just, you know, you're forever becoming. So anyway, did you know in high school what you wanted to be or what you wanted to do? I had an answer to the question, but it's certainly not what I am now. Well, what Um, was it then? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, honestly, I kind of, and, and this is again, right? Like you change your mind as you grow. I would say when I was real little, um, the answer was probably like a teacher, some point I think veterinarian was an answer. Um, and then as I got older and in high school, I was thinking guidance counselor or psychologist. And so, um, you know, psychologist was where I kind of landed as, as a high school student. And so when I went to college, I did major in psychology. Um, and initially was thinking, you know, more of a, a clinical psychology sense and, realized soon into the study is that I would probably get burned out way too quickly if I pursued that. And so, you know, stuck with the psychology degree, but still kind of had even at the end of college was kind of like, I have no idea what I'm doing (laughs) once I finish this. What did, um, do you know what prompted you to, to go that route initially? Was there like someone or something in your life that kind of you know, yeah, I, I think I was always I was always the friend that people went to to talk. I was always, you know, the listening ear and the the source of advice for many people. Um, and so I think I felt comfortable in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but and at the same time, I think my mother is is a little bit like that as well. And she once I was in college, went back for her master's uh, to become a nurse practitioner in psychology. So I think, I think it's also a little bit of a family trait. (laughs) So, um, definitely, uh, a little bit of the upbringing just in general, you know, how my relationships were with friends and things like that. So there, there certainly were people in my life that 
made me feel like, you know, that was something that probably was a good pursuit for me. Um, but again, it was just once, once I really got into it and started thinking about, you know, long-term careers for, for decades, you get overwhelmed by that thought. And it's like, I can, I can be the listening ear and, and the source of advice without, um, making it my day job. <laughs> so, right. Did yeah. you, when you were, when you kind of realized the burnout, is it, do you think because you're, um, an empath or like, do you, do you take on a lot of like that emotional burden sometimes with friends? Yeah, probably. I think it depends on the situation, but definitely I can, um, you know, feel, feel what people are going through and, and put myself in their shoes. And so, um, to do that every day as a job is, is probably not the the right career path for me. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I would be that way too. Right. And, um, because I, I am probably a little to the extreme on the empath side sometimes. And, um, and I'll, I mean, I definitely like news can sometimes hit me way too hard. Um, Mm -hmm. which is just, you know, it's, I'm a really badass lawyer. So (laughs) (laughs) that's, uh, that's not the best trait for that role, I think, sometimes. <laughs> but you, um, how did you decide on University of Mary Washington? Um, so I kind of got to, I guess I got to my junior year. I had gone on a few college visits and just really hadn't found any schools that really, to me, were like, yes, this is it. This is where I want to go. Um, and so just kind of you know, had, had, had a short list of schools I was planning to apply to, um, but wasn't super excited about any of them. Um, and then kind of, I guess the summer between junior and senior year, I really realized that I wasn't ready to give up the idea of being an athlete and playing softball. Um, you know, my high school had a very competitive softball program. We've gone to States, we've been undefeated in the County, you know, so we've, from school to travel ball, which I honestly didn't play travel ball until much later in high school. There were kids I played with that, you know, played travel ball from middle school on. So the idea of like super competitive outside of high school was new to me towards the end of high school. And so once it got to the point of choosing a college, I I realized like if I go to one of these bigger schools, number one, it just doesn't feel like it fits my personality. But number two, I don't think I'm playing softball there. (laughs) So um, I had to do a little bit more thinking around, you know, whether or not I was, I was going to play, um, and looked at a few smaller division three schools. Um, and my sister at the time was going to SUNY Geneseo, which is a pretty good, well, one of the, one of the best state schools here in New York. Um, and so that would have been, you know, the best option for me to stay in state in New York, but who wants to, be the little sister constantly. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to, you know, forge my own path and, and not be Karen's little sister once I got to college. Cause I was that in high school. Um, and so I kept looking with Genesee almost as like a fallback option in my mind. And finally, one day my mom said, you know, I have a coworker at work whose daughter goes to this state school in Virginia. He speaks really highly of it. Like maybe you should look into it. 
And so, you know, I went to the website and I, I looked in that we had that big, like four inch book of colleges, that Barron's book of colleges, that blue book. <laughs> yeah. So I like flipped all the way to Mary Washington. I'm looking it up. Like the SAT scores were in line. They had psychology as a major. They had, you know, NCAA softball. It was division three. Um, you know, everything on paper seemed to line up. So I was like, all right, let me go to this school's website. And I went to the website, click around, find the virtual tour. And I just turned to my mom and I was like, listen, if this school looks anything like what it does in these pictures, <laughs> I was like, I'm going. So it was November of my senior year that I took a trip down with my dad. And, you know, we had left New York. It was cold. We had winter jackets on. We get out of the car. It was like 60 or 70 and sunny and the leaves are changing. And I was just like, this is it. I've, I've found my new home. <laughs> so, um, you know, took the tour of campus, met with coach and, you know, just fell in love. And so it, it was a state school in Virginia that had my mom, you know, not had that coworker. I don't know that I ever would have found it on my own. Um, but it was, you know, the perfect liberal arts school that had what I was looking for and gave me, an, in my opinion, a really well-rounded education. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, um, I know that it's like so, well, first of all, the fact that we had to use books to find schools back in the day. <laughs> Just want to point that out to everyone listening yeah. who is under the age of 30. God, I'm so old. Um, <laughs> and um, I can totally relate to that like feeling of like, it's cold everywhere around me. Now it's warm. Um, yeah. And liking that. I only I only applied to UMass. I, I got really stubborn and, and was like, I'm going here. I'm going to their sport management program. I have no idea what that means, but I'm doing it. <laughs> and yeah. it, you know whatever it worked out it was much colder there though um <laughs> than on cape cod yes. so uh that was interesting but um how do you feel that being a collegiate athlete um uh, rounded out your experience um in college and you know um yeah i think it yeah i mean i think it definitely took a lot of time management. Um, you know, it, it made me make some choices that had I not been an athlete, I probably would have been more involved with certain things on campus that were always super appealing to me, but I just didn't have the time to commit to them. Um, but the things that I were involved in, I was dedicated and really, you know, very picky about what I chose to become involved with because I knew how limited I was. Um, you know, and I think it... It certainly gave me, you know, we at Women's Sports Foundation, we have all the research that shows, right, the health, education, and leadership benefits that you get from sports. And I think, you know, looking back at my time both as a child, but then also in college, it's 100% true, right? Like you learn the time management, you learn how to become a, a leader, um, you, you know, your academics improve because you have no time for anything else. <laughs> so it's playing and practice and showing up class in sweats because you're just out of your 6am and you're doing a two a day this week. So, um, you know, I think it, it definitely limited the options that I had for other extracurriculars, but such an invaluable experience to be able to challenge myself, 
um, you know, on the field to have those teammates that I've had um, and still friends with to this day. You know, it's it was a really special and I think unique opportunity that not everybody gets. So I'm really fortunate to have had that. Because you realized that you weren't going to go into clinical psychology as a career path, mm-hmm. uh, what, as you know, graduation was getting closer, like what did you start doing to prepare for graduation and life after? So, you know, I, I really wasn't sure. And I was thinking grad school, maybe I was thinking sports psychology at that point. I was, you know, trying to think maybe there are other things that I would want to do. Um, I really fell in love with research. We, we had a general psychology degree. It wasn't like you could choose to specialize in clinical or, or anything like that. So, um, but the electives that you took could kind of lead you a little bit more towards one path or another in psychology. Um, but I just really, um, I know most people don't say this, but I really enjoyed the statistics and the research. Um, and it was just, it, that's what stuck with me. And that's what I enjoyed most about the psychology degree was really, it, it's a, it's a very strong, um, research component to the general degree at Mary Washington. And so I really took a liking to that and was thinking like, maybe I'd do something along the research lines and more of an academic setting. Um, but quite frankly, I, at that point was kind of like, I just need to get through senior year because as much as I was busy playing softball, I still chose, um, to become an officer in the psychology honor society to become a computer lab aide, which was, you know, essentially a part-time paid job in the psychology department, like, you know, making sure the computers were working and the printers didn't jam and the toner was (laughs) full But, you know, it was also a pretty, it it was an honor to be asked to become a lab aide. It wasn't just like, hey, we have this open job, right? So I was asked to become a lab aide. And so I did that as well. So I had the part-time job as a lab aide. I was an officer in the Honor Society for Psychology, um, chose to do an independent study. um, And on top of that, chose to do an, an honors thesis, which, you know, involved writing my own thesis and doing my own bit of research in addition to the small group that we were working with. Um, so, and then softball being a spring sport, I really kind of had my hands full by the end of senior year Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just kind of decided like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I am going to just get through senior year and then I'll figure it out. Um, and I think that's the one thing that probably, athletes sometimes are faced with is that oftentimes the the support for like internships and resume writing and, you know, finding connections in the area to maybe line up a job or an internship after school, you don't always have the time to do that. Um, and sometimes that makes that transition hard. And if you don't, if you as an athlete don't fully understand how much what you've learned as an athlete really skill set that is applicable to the job that you're looking for, it makes it harder, right? So that's also some of what we do with WSF is making sure these athletes who are transitioning understand like, yeah, you may not have the regular trajectory that some folks may, but this competition and teamwork that you've learned by being an athlete makes up for the other pieces that you're missing. And and this being an athlete is also a huge skill set for you. And you need to market that as such. And so, yeah. So I have a couple of follow-ups on all this. 
Um, What was your honors thesis on? My honors thesis was on the uh, division of household labor and expectations of like how expectations of societal norms influence how you would expect household labor to be divided. Holy crap, that's fascinating. Um, (laughs) Seriously, I actually like there's a lot of... As you, I mean, obviously you're a woman in the world now, so you've seen like all the books and all the um, articles that have come out in the last, I don't know, like five years, I want to say, and even less yeah. maybe. Um, so that's got to make you kind of chuckle a little bit as you see those because you're like, yeah, fools, I did this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and I had... Um you know, great professors who were focused on, uh, you know, feminism and, you know, parenting, things like that. So they certainly helped, but, you know, we had a, it was two professors and three students. So a really small intimate group of doing this research and it was, um, super, super interesting to me. And I think really that was part of where I was like, well, I really like this research and academic side. Um, so I was at that point of like, okay, I just need to get through, getting, defending the honors thesis, getting that done, finishing senior year of softball, you know, getting through this. And then I should also mention that at the point where I was graduating, the economy was well on its way downhill and there were no jobs. What? (laughs) So, I mean, I I graduated in in 2008 from undergrad. And so that 08, 09 timeframe, you know, not only was nobody hiring, people were getting laid off. So I really, there were, there were not, you know, an abundance of entry level jobs available. Um, So it was, it was a definitely a challenging time to graduate. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I, (laughs) I graduated from law school the year before. I know. Uh, Yeah. Do, um, God, I have so many questions for you right now. Um, (laughs) Has, I'm going back to that thesis. Um, Has, Did that research or has that research and that project Mm -hmm. informed or maybe like helped you as you, you know, grow up, maybe you have relationships, maybe family life, like did that, has that formed any of your like, you know, way, the ways in which you do or expect to, you know, run like your life and like relationships and family life? Should that be what you choose? Um, I, I think it's always something that like, I think back to, um, but it's not necessarily a piece that like informs a day-to-day discussion about like who's taking out the trash, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. a different flow in my household that like that it's, it's a very fluid division of labor that, you know, it's not, um, that certain tasks are just assigned to somebody just because, um, but certainly, you know, I think about it when I look at the, you know, larger picture of society. Um, and especially, you know, when we're looking at coaches from the women's sports foundation point of view, right. We're looking at this decline of coaches since the passage of title nine, And then you take another step back and you look at just all of these conversations about women, 
in society and working women and, you know, trying to find that, you know, work-life balance. And it definitely, all of that undergrad research comes to mind as all of the, you know, as society picks up on that conversation about working women and work-life balance and, and things like that. Right. And to be clear, the decline is for women coaches. Um, yeah. So it's the passage of Title IX. We're seeing yes. kind of like a, so, a flow out. Well, and it's a decline in the percentage of women coaches of women's teams. Right. So before Title IX, there were 90% of women's college teams were coached by women. And today that number is down to about 40%. Right. So granted, there are more teams to be coached, but you also now have more athletes going through the ranks. Um, and you would assume more women ready and able to coach. Um, but the numbers are just, they've just declined so dramatically. Right. And we, um, it's, you know, this is something that I've talked to to other women about quite a few times. Um, we had Tara Black, who's the COO of the Charlotte Checkers, the AHL team that's connected to the uh, Hurricanes. And, um, you know, there there's this drop-off um, after a certain point in women's careers in sports where, you know, not even on the coaching side, just, you know, on like the business side, right? Where mm-hmm. they kind of get to a point where they start dropping out and why that might be, especially in a, a sport like hockey or baseball, where there's so many events, right? So many home games um, mm-hmm. and and how we manage that. Um, and I think it's a, a consistent theme that we have to look at. I mean, sports loses great talent a lot of times, um, even, you know, on the, you know, with men because of the high demand and sometimes really low pay. Yeah. Okay. So what was your independent study on? No, that, that was the independent oh, okay. study. So All yeah. Right. I was like, damn, you're doing like multiple, <laughs> like, I can't even. So, okay, yeah. cool. So this, the thesis was the end result of that independent study. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. Um, so graduation comes, yep. um, your season is over. Your thesis has been turned in all that yep. you walk across now. What? Well, so rewind just a little bit. We were actually, um, I was on the way home from, and away game with the team, you know, shortly before graduation, but it was still during that final semester. And again, I have no idea what I'm doing. I had, you know, had an interview, informational interview with a sports psychologist who was an alum of Mary Wash and, you know, had talked to her about that and was kind of thinking about like, maybe I'll do grad school, but obviously at this point it's too late to apply to grad school. Like I'll go home and study for the GREs this summer and then, you know, think about grad schools. And I'm sitting on the bus and a teammate is talking to me and she was like, you know, I was looking for internships and I came across one that like really seems like it would be a great fit for you. And I was like, really? Like what? And she was like, I I don't know. It's this like women's sports something. (laughs) They're in New York. Like, uh, and I was like, "Okay, okay, like send it to me when you get back to the dorm. And 
she didn't send it to me right away. I got home and immediately like went on my computer and started Googling like every combination of words that she had said. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on my own found, um, you know, the Women's Sports Foundation's internship program. And so I saw it and I was like, holy cow, like this organization, number one, seems amazing. Number two, how did I not know about it? Um, and like, I would love to get an internship with them. And so I'm looking and the internship programs were from, I think they started June, June to December or January to June. And so it was probably like late April at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, well, you know, they probably have everyone selected who's starting in June. And I don't want to apply like at the 11th hour being like, yeah, I'm totally totally a reliable intern who thinks that this is how the world works. That's applying to an internship like two weeks before it starts. Um, so I was like, okay, this place sounds amazing, but like we have interns already selected at this point in time. So, you know, I get through graduation I, I moved back home, um, and used the summer really to just apply to a ton of jobs. Um, and I don't think I heard back from any of them, like not even like a thanks for your application. We filled the position, like, oh my gosh. just mm-hmm. like applying, 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 and just never hearing back. And so then, you know, probably got to about August when I was like, okay, like now it feels appropriate to apply for the January session of women's first foundations internship. And so <clears throat> I applied and you could, it was the way the process worked was that you could indicate like which departments you were interested in. And none of them really felt like super, I have tons of experience in this, right? Like there was marketing, there was communications, things like that. I'm like, I don't, I don't have the experience for that. Um, and there was advocacy, but the advocacy position was based in DC. And the wonderful thing about the internship program was that it was actually a paid internship, which was like someone heard of, um, but it was not well-paid, right? You're essentially making minimum wage. And so I was like, I don't know that I can afford to like move to DC and and pay rent on minimum wage. (laughs) So I kept it to the positions that were located in New York and chose a few departments that I felt like spoke to me and that I would have a skill set to succeed in those departments. So I applied and then within a couple weeks, I actually got, was contacted by the internship coordinator and said, hey, like we have an immediate opening um, any chance you'd be interested in starting sooner rather than in January? I was like, yep, I'd be available to do that. <laughs> You're like, hold and on, let so, me check my calendar. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Wait, wait two minutes before uh, replying. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, basically, basically replied immediately uh, and said, absolutely, like I'd, I'd be available to start as soon as possible. Um, came in and had an interview with Marge Snyder, who, you know, was my very first boss there and still to this day, you know, is still involved with the foundation. And just um, for those who work in the women's sports world and, and the research world, um, she's she's a well-known name and I'm, I'm so lucky to have had her and to have had the chance to learn from her. Um, so I came in, I interviewed with Marge and she said, you know, we have a few other folks that we're interviewing, but like, we'll get back to you within the next few weeks or so. And so 
And the one thing that she did say was that whoever she brought in for this position, she expected to stay on for the next full session, right? Because now you have like three months left of one session and then there's another six month session coming up. She was like, I'm not training somebody for three months. Um, I was like, yeah, no, that, that works. I'm happy to stay on for the, for the January session as well. Um, and so then, you know, within a few weeks from applying, basically, I would say probably within like a month from actually submitting the application, I started. So I started at the end of September that following year after graduating. And that's actually right after graduating. Pretty quick. And I'm trying to think of like the time period, right? So it's, uh, 2008, and again, I'm doing this, A, to show how old we are, but also, like, because I think sometimes um, young adults are spoiled now. Um, but you, like, there weren't, like, online application portals, really, at that point. It was, like, a yeah. send your letter, your cover letter and resume to maybe this email address, which made mm-hmm. it a little bit easier. And then sometimes you just had to send it, which, yeah. in mail. <clears throat> and yeah. you had to make sure you had, like, fancy paper, which I, yep. you know, uh-huh. like, at this, at this just a very random thought, like, I wonder if the fancy paper companies have seen a significant (laughs) decline in sales of their fancy paper and fancy envelopes. Um, I feel like they probably just repositioned themselves for wedding invitations because that business. (laughs) Right. Or like gender reveal parties. Um, Which are just a whole nother topic that I find so bizarre. Um, But, like, I remember having to, like, find the fancy paper that I liked, the, like, shade Mm -hmm. of white or cream. Beige, yeah. Yeah, making sure it matched with the envelopes. Um, It had a nice little texture to it. Yeah, actually printing things out. (laughs) God, we're so old. Good good times. (laughs) So old. You guys, it's so much less expensive to apply to jobs now than it used to be. Um, anyway, so like I'm guessing uh, what was it? it was probably an email that you had to do, right? Because I can't imagine that their website, not that WSF is like behind the times ever, but even at that point, like multi-billion dollar companies didn't really have the online application portals. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I there was a website that explained the internship, and then I I'm trying to remember if it was either like an online form where you could like I want to say it was an online form where you like chose your departments and then you inserted your little like personal statement, mm-hmm. but then you had to follow up separately and email your resume to somebody. Gotcha. Yeah, so that makes it was sense. it was like a mix. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then for people listening, like a month is unheard of. When it comes to applying, interviewing, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know people who are on month eight of waiting <laughs> to hear about a role that like yeah. just in sports, it just takes forever <clears throat> sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I applied in August thinking I'd start in January. And, you know, I was in the door at a computer by the end of September, yeah. which was just, you know, way faster of a turnaround than expected, but it was just kind of a perfect combination of events. 
Well, and that timing um, still pretty much holds today. I mean, people will ask me about internships where I work right now, and I'm like, listen, if you're looking out at summer, you need to, you know, be checking the online, you know, the main online board, Teamwork Online, in January. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah. you know, it's not like a month before that people start posting for these things. It's many months in right. advance. It- yeah. Um, and I'm sure with you all, I mean, it's probably the same thing, right? Like it's like four months in advance, I would think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't have, so we don't have the formal internship program in the way that we used to have. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly in favor of finding ways to bring it back. Because <laughs> yeah. I know how powerful of a program it was. You know, we've we've had many um, really phenomenal men and women come through the internship program at the Women's Sports Foundation, um, who are now working all over the sports world. Um, so it certainly was a powerful program when it existed. And we have some volunteers that come in every once in a while, but we we don't have the same kind of formal process that we've had in the past. Sure, sure. Y'all, I am so excited. Pitchers and catchers report in six to 10 days, depending on what team you follow. I love when baseball starts. And you know what a fun way to celebrate the start of the baseball season is? Popping on down to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Arizona's Cactus League in Greater Phoenix boasts 15 teams and 10 stadiums, all within a 50-mile radius. Spring training is just one of my favorite times of year. There's a ton of accessibility to players, and you really get to enjoy that true small ballpark feel. When you're not at one of the ballparks, you can wander around the city where there are amazing restaurants and bars, including tons of craft breweries. And Arizona is known for its beautiful landscapes and really cool outdoor adventures from hiking and biking to hot air balloons and skydiving. Arizona has you covered. And if you're planning on bringing little ones to spring training, Arizona has tons of family-friendly resorts and hotels that offer plenty of fun for kids of all ages. And that includes water parks and horseback riding, games and activities. Spring training is so much fun. You're not ever going to be mad if you go. So plan your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. So what role, you know, did you start in? Um, I know you are now um, the senior director of advocacy. Um but that's not where you started. It is not. So I actually started, um, I think at the time we called the Department of Education Research. Um, so it was working on our educational programs, which mainly meant our Go Girl Go curriculum, which is an educational program and curriculum that's provided free of charge nationally that essentially seeks to introduce physical activity to young girls um, and teach them physical literacy and and what it means to get active and and healthy habits like um, nutrition and life lessons and self-esteem. So I worked on our educational side, which is mainly things with the curriculum. um, And then also on research, which Women's Force Foundation has a really rich history of research um, throughout our history. Um, and so, you know, whether it was, 
you know, reviewing the research reports, just reading through them and things like that, um, or, you know, the dissemination plan and making sure that, like, look again, back to a decade ago, <laughs> taking the physical printed copies of reports and sticking them in envelopes and making sure they got addressed and stamped and, you know, enough postage to get across the country to the libraries that we wanted them to be um, in addition to some emailing of reports, but there there was a lot more of like the physical, hey, here's this 200 page report that we just printed, thought you'd want copy, right? And getting it in the mail. Um, and so, you know, working on, on the research side of things as well, which to, in my opinion, like really helped bridge where I came from in undergrad into the real world. Um, so that was like a nice transition to to still be a little bit tangential to research and the stuff that I loved and have have the knowledge necessary to kind of apply it there at the foundation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it would have been a perfect fit at that time for you and <coughs> certainly um, set the foundation for what you would do going forward because having that that knowledge and being so intimately involved from the research side makes it easier for you to advocate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's the research that we do is just so integral to everything and, and really informs our work that we're not just creating a program to create a program, right? We're not just advocating on a policy with no idea of, you know, what the actual, um, you know, background of it is. So, being able to understand those stats and have that inform our advocacy work and inform the programs that we have and the evaluation of programs that we have and how that kind of becomes a cyclical, um, you know, process is really interesting. And definitely, um, I think that the research background that I have that started at Mary Washington just has been critical to my career and my success. Um, you know, I don't, it's not like I'm running T-tests and, uh, you know, regressions and things like that, but certainly, um, you know, having a basic knowledge has been helpful uh, in, you know, moving forward and being able to, to take the research and apply it to what we're doing. I have no idea what T-tests <laughs> or regressions are, but That's they sound... Boring. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it don't, you don't need to explain it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so when we, you know, uh, the word advocacy can mean quite a few different things. Um, in my world, um, I think of attorneys. Um, for everyone listening, can you give a bit of context for what advocacy means in, in your world? Yeah. So I think, you know, advocacy really at the Women's Sports Foundation, I think of it as kind of like two buckets of what we do, that there's the grassroots, more educational side of advocacy. And then there's the broader national or sometimes international level of policy work. Um, so at the grassroots level, we often, you know, focus on Title IX just because that is such a huge factor. Um, in girls and women's participation opportunities. So we'll often have parents, sometimes coaches, sometimes the student athletes themselves contact us and say, you know, 
hey, I was Googling these things and then I found Title IX and then I Googled that and then I Googled, and then I found you. I'm like, what is this, right? And so then it's giving the folks on the ground the educational resources that they need and the materials that they need to go in and, and walk into that athletic director's office or you know go up to the coach and say, here's, here's what the law says and here's the situation at this school. And we're not providing equitable opportunities and this is what we want to see changed, right? So empowering the people on the ground to take the initiative and do that work is a large part of what we do. But then the second part is really looking at the bigger picture and keeping an eye on policies and making sure that we're speaking out when we see policies that are either really good, right, or things that could be detrimental to women and girls' access to sports. And by policies, do you mean like institutional policies or do you mean <clears throat> legislative policies or is it a combination? It's a combination. So it could be legislation. It could be, you know, uh, a broader NCAA policy. Uh, it could be something, you know, more at a, a smaller conference or, you know, school level. But generally, I would say at the broader governance level, whether it be, you know, NCAA, Capitol Hill, right, or right. like a national governing body, Um have you met Billie Jean King? Yes. Yes. Many, oh many God. times over. Many times over at this point. Yes, absolutely. She's wonderful. I mean, you've only worked there like <laughs> almost 11 years. So, um, <laughs> all right. So I'm super jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners, Billie Jean King um, really started the Women's Sports Foundation, right? She did. She founded the Women's Sports Foundation in 1974. And so for, for those who are unfamiliar with her career, um, definitely I would encourage you to, to go take a look. Why and, and are you listening up, to yeah, this and, podcast? Right, that, that too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in 72, Billy beat Bobby in 73, and then Billie Jean founded the Women's Sports Foundation in 74. Um, so really, you know, a critical time for women's sports in the early 70s. Well, and let's back um, up a real quick little bit. She also founded the Women's Tennis Association. Yes. Um, in what, 72, 73, I think. Um, that sounds right. I don't, I don't know that date offhand, but that sounds right. But it was that, before it was, the it match was before with Bobby. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, just starting things left and right to impact women in sports. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Some of us like to hang out with our cats. <laughs> Other people like to start revolutions. It's fine. Yes. So <laughs> tremendous uh, pioneer and, you know, social justice advocate for, you know, women's rights, LGBT equality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Billy is just such a such a critical figure to a lot of uh, movements for equality in this country. Um, and you all have, you know, you have some great programs, obviously. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, the athletes that you all support, um, and some of the programs with them? Yeah. So for, for the athletes that we support, we work with, you know, elite champion athletes in a number of ways. And so one way is through our, our travel and training grant program. 
And that is a grant program that provides just a little bit of extra funding to help elite athletes reach that next level. So um, people are often surprised to learn that the national governing body, depending on the sport, often doesn't foot the bill necessary to, you know, reach that next level. Um, and that athletes are often, you know, working second and third jobs to be able to pay for their training, for their coaching, for the travel to get to international competition in order to make it to that next level and qualify for certain competitions. Um, so, the travel and training grant program provides that funding for those um, promising elite athletes who are, you know, just short of making it to the next level and need that additional push to get there. You know, one of one of my favorite examples of the travel and training fund is when a young girl named Michelle Kwan applied um, because she needed a new pair of skates. And it was kind of at the point where she had outgrown the skates she had and she needed new skates to be able to continue competing. And she received a travel and training grant. She was able to get the new skates, get some additional training. And now she's Michelle Kwan, right? right. So <laughs> it's, it's, finding, it's finding those Michelle Kwans before they become Michelle Kwan and, and making sure that they can stay in, in competition and stay in the game. Um, and then we just, in, in general, work more broadly with athlete ambassadors who really serve as ambassadors for the Women's Sports Foundation, um, whether it be coming with us to advocacy events like National Girls and Women at Sports Day on Capitol Hill um, or community events and activations where they can talk to girls and some of our community partner organizations and, you know, embark some some life lessons on the girls and act as a mentor and role model. Um, you mentioned National Girls and Women in Sports Day. So let's talk about that and yeah. what it is that you all are doing. It is... Um, well, when everyone is listening to this initial release, because you can listen to podcasts after, it's today, February yeah, 6th, so correct? Power of technology, yes. February 6th, National Girls and Women in Sports Day. Um, so we're super excited to head down to Capitol Hill. We'll be in Washington, D.C. Um, for a few days. And so uh, we'll have a community activation, athlete ambassador event on Tuesday evening, February 5th, with George Washington University um, and bring in a number of girls from our community partners in the D.C. metro area. And then on Wednesday, we will actually go and talk with congressional and Senate offices um, and talk to, you know, members themselves, but also staffers about the importance of sports for women and girls, make sure they understand the need to keep Title IX strong. Um, and we'll also be talking about a newly introduced Senate bill uh, called S-132, which is calling for a commission to basically look into the USOC and create a report and just kind of see what's going on and, and what changes need to be made to make sure that um, the Olympic movement in this country is functioning the way it should and, and keeping athletes' uh, safety in mind and and making sure that we have equity and opportunities and, and representation. Uh, you all have often, uh, I'm not, how do I say this? Um, you, your organization hasn't necessarily gotten into the fray around what's occurred with the gymnastics um, situation and Dr. Nassar and stuff like this. And so it's really interesting to see. And I think part of that is just, you know, your role is, um, 
is different um, than jumping in on, you know, things of the moment. So this is a really interesting uh, bill that you all are supporting. Yeah, I mean, and and last year we were down um, talking about the Safe Sport Authorization Act. So it's, you know, we we certainly have continuously advocated for athlete safety and making sure that there are policies in place to prevent things like Nasser from happening um, and working with folks to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. So last year for National Girls and Women in Sports Day, we were actually uh, planning to go down to lobby for the, the Safe Sport Authorization Act, which would have... Um, you know, basically approved the existence of and authorized the existence of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Um, and by the time we actually got down on the hill, we had, you know, ma- we're making these plans to lobby. And by the time we got down on the hill, the bill had actually already passed. Right. Um, you know, which is part of a challenge of having a set day that you're going down. Yeah. And like, <laughs> hey, there's this bill. Let's go. Right. And everybody hops on a train and gets to D.C. So, um, you know, fortunately, the bill passed even quicker than we would have expected it to. Uh, but the key was that it didn't pass with uh, appropriations. Right. And so, you know, the, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport was authorized to exist, but they didn't receive funding from the government at that point in time. So we used our opportunity on the Hill to talk about um, how there might be money appropriated to Safe Sport in order to allow them to, you know, hire the staffing necessary and be able to carry out their mission, Right. It's great that they exist. Right. They need to be able, they need to have the resources to do their job. Right. And to, to be able to do their job effectively and in a, uh, and without conflict, they need separate appropriations than USOC. Right. And so, you know, a lot of folks are calling for, you know, making sure that the, that safe sport is as independent as possible. I think right now they do get some money directly from USOC and the NGVs. Um, but in the same way that USADA, which is the U S anti-doping agency gets government appropriations. Right. Um, it makes sense for the U S center for safe sport to get government appropriations, to be able to make sure that children and, you know, even adults within Olympic sports movements in this country are set, are safe. Right. And, you know, we've seen a lot of stories over the last few years, and I'm sure there are more to come, unfortunately, but making sure this is top of mind is huge. So I applaud you all for doing this. Um, and that's a great bill, um, which, you know, I will, try and have available for all of our listeners. Um, they know that my website is not always up to date because it's being revamped, but we'll like tweet it or something. And, um, yeah. So when you go and speak on, you know, when you guys are visiting, um, and talk a little bit about that. I mean, I've had that experience in telecom, which is way more boring, by the way. Uh, but I, I think a lot of people don't really know what happens when you are meeting with senators and their staff or, you know, congressional members and their staff about like, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is, uh, it's a conversation. It's, um, you know, we set up the schedules ahead of time. So I have 
a colleague who, or actually two colleagues who have been putting in some tremendous work to make sure that we're getting a good amount of visits on the schedule and that we have the, the right offices to go and see and the right staffer to speak with. Um, but so on the Hill, there are offered, often staffers that specialize on one topic or another. And so making sure that we're talking with either the person who oversees sports or education. Um, sometimes they have somebody that's more dedicated towards like Olympic movement sports. If they're a member who sits on the committees that oversee the Olympic movement. Um, so just making sure that we have the right person lined up to speak to, and then, you know, going in, telling them that we're there for national girls and women in sports day, introducing everyone in the group. We usually have about four or five people with us and kind of all, you know, groups of four or five go all over the hill and, and have individual meetings, um, making sure that we have our champion athletes who are always, you know, that's who they want to speak to. They want to talk to the world champion or the Olympian touch the gold medal, right? They, yeah. they are excited about that. Um, but also getting down to business and making sure we talk to them about who the women's sports foundation is, the work that we're doing, um, making sure that they understand the importance of Title IX and keeping it strong. Um, and then if there is a specific piece of legislation, alerting them to it and explaining, you know, if it's a good piece of legislation, what else they should keep in mind if this legislation were passed? Um, and ultimately, you know, asking if their member or if, if it's the member you're meeting with, if they would co-sponsor it. Um, so if that member would, you know, put their name on the list of, of folks who are saying like, yes, I'm sponsoring this bill. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people just think about like lobbyists, right? Like, yeah, you know, those like, I don't know, Jessica Chastain. Um, and which by the way, that's a great movie. I can't think of the name of it right now, but it's a really good movie. Um, and I, you know, I love that you mentioned the athletes that you'll bring because one of the most important things that I learned when I did some of this was like, you know, context and story, right? So having that right, athlete right. be there to be able to say, well, this is why this is so important to me because I wouldn't be where I am without X, Y, or Z. Um, exactly. So yes, the shiny metals are fun and, and all of that, but it also is like the, almost like the foot in the door, you know, to like, yeah. and when you make it an emotional connection, then it, it's easier to make yeah. your point at large. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so, there are some other really exciting things. Well, what is there anything else that you guys are doing on that and like what's happening nationally on um, that day? So nationally, uh, so the Women's Sports Foundation is the national organizer of the day, but across the country, all 50 states and Washington, D.C., there are community organizations, schools who all host their own events in celebration of National Girls and Women in Sports Day. And so you can actually go on our website uh, for NGWSD itself. There's a micro site, so NGWSD.org. And you can click on events and put in your zip code and select a you know mileage radius and find events in your area if you want to attend. And some of them happen, you know, on the days surrounding and not necessarily right on the 6th. So if you're listening to this a few days late, you can still go ahead and, and take a look at what's happening in your area. There's a chance there's still things happening, you know, throughout February and sometimes even into March, quite frankly. Um, and, or 
you can download the event action kit and find out some cool ideas and cool ways for you to plan your own event. Um, so if you're with a community organization, a school, you have a little league team, you can create your own NGWSD event and then you can register it on the site and let us know about it. For those of you listening to, um, as this is released on the 6th of February, 2019, uh, because apparently these live into the future. Um, they do this evening in Tampa. So if you're in the Tampa St. Pete area, um, uh, there's an event at Emily arena. Um, the Tampa Bay sports commission, um, is hosting one of their beyond series. So this is, um, called beyond the barrier, I believe. Um, and former guests, Donna Orender will be there. Um, I think Claire Lessinger should be there. Um, I know some of the people who I initially thought would be there are going to be traveling. I am traveling, so I won't be there. Um, but, um, you know, if you're in town um, and want to go, um, just Google Beyond the Barrier Tampa maybe. <laughs> and it should show up. If you're a wise yeah. member um, in Tampa, you've already gotten notice of this. And um, I think it's from like 530 or 6 until later in the evening. But anyway, it'll be a really good event. There are going to be a bunch of women there um, in the industry who are doing phenomenal things. And, um, you know, I, I recommend you attend, even if it is pretty last minute. Um, there was an announcement uh, on Friday the 1st, I believe, um, about something really cool that you all are doing with Scott Pioli um, and his family. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so just last week... Also, uh, who, who Scott Pioli is for people yeah. listening. <laughs> so Scott Pioli is the assistant general manager, I believe I have his title correctly, of the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and a new board member to the Women's Sports Foundation. He is, in just broadly speaking, a great human um, and wonderful advocate for you know diversity and inclusion in sports. And so just last week, we were really um, excited to announce the creation of the Scott Pioli and Family Fund for the advancement of uh, football coaches and scouts, for female football coaches and scouts. And so this is an endowed program that Scott and his family have created with the Women's Sports Foundation um, and will be able to provide financial assistance to women who are looking to advance in football, in college and professional football, both in coaching and in scouting. Which is so, so cool. Um, we've, we know that there are programs, um, the NFL has worked with Sam, you know, Sam Rappaport there. Um, at some point in life, I'm going to get her on this podcast, people, I promise <laughs> you. Uh, our lives are so crazy. Um, you know, and they've really been trying to work to create that pipeline, but it really is a pipeline issue. And part of that issue is having women go through the same um, starting at the same levels, like early on in careers, you know, at the high school, college levels, um, before getting up into the NFL so that they are prepared because I think, you know, it's really easy to jump in, 
you know, to make a, a splash and, and to have a, a female come into the NFL. But if that female hasn't had the same opportunities, um, to grow and develop at other levels, um, it doesn't always set them up for success. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, there are positions again, right. It's like taking the internship that's not very well paid, right. It's taking opportunities that don't pay very well, but really give you that foot in the door and that experience you need to get to that next level. So the goal of this fund is to really, to find those women who have those opportunities in college and professional to, you know, give them the support that they need to, to get those opportunities and to grow. It's so cool. And of course yeah. it was announced right before the big game. Yep. Um, and there were some, you know, generally some interesting events around the Super Bowl, as always about women in football. So, um, you know, it, it uh, caught the attention of a lot of people and, great. you know, Scott, from what I understand, I've not had the pleasure of speaking with him. Um, but from what I understand has been extremely supportive and really um, tried to to work and mentor and find ways um, to include more women in football. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is, you know, just another piece of that puzzle and, you know, piece of support that we can lend from the Women's Sports Foundation standpoint to, you know, help increase those numbers. And then we'll also have something exciting, I'm going to say, within the next month. So the applications for the Scott Pioli grant uh, are live. And so if you know folks who are interested in that, send them to the Women's Sports Foundation website, which is womensportsfoundation.org. And, um, you know, those applications are rolling. So really just, you know, getting the applications in one by one and and making sure that we're reviewing them and seeing um, what applicants we have before deciding on, uh, awarding the funding. But then after that, we'll have, um, I would say within the next month, the application will be live for the Tara Vandeveer Fund for the Advancement of Women in Coaching. Um, and that's also up on our website right now, but the the application itself isn't live, but that will be for women in collegiate coaching. And so we're working on that as well. Um, but for, for that one, it's the institution that's applying for the funding to be able to take in a Oh, that's exciting. And yeah, a really great way to do that. Um, I'm just going to call someone out right now, Mickey Grace, if you're listening to this um, and you don't apply for that Scott Pioli thing, I'm going to come to Philly and have words with you. <laughs> um, uh, and then I'm going to text her and tell her. Um, <laughs> They're just like, you know, you know, certain people that you want to push forward. Right. And yeah, um, Mickey is this is this great young woman who um, at my organization interned this past year um, and um, got to do some, you know, coaching um, as Mm -hmm. part of the internship. It wasn't actually uh, the it wasn't the main part of her internship, like why she was brought in. And then right. it just turned into, it was just really cool to watch. So anyway, um, so you've got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 We've got, we've got plenty going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, but we've got a really great hardworking team uh, at the WSF. So 
we've got lots of things happening, but all for the greater good and, and carrying out the mission and making sure, you know, that we're advancing opportunities for girls and women in sports. Um, so what can people do if they want to get involved with the Women's Sports Foundation? So, you know, I think that's a really broad question. We do so many things that it, depending on who it is, there's probably um, different answers for different people. Um, but, you know, get involved, follow us on social media, reach out to us if you have specific skill sets that you think would be helpful that we would be able to utilize um, on our team's end plan your own national girls and women in sports day event or attend one in your area. Um, and, you know, stay, stay tuned for lots of, uh, new and exciting programs from us. Um, what is your website? www.womenssportsfoundation.org. So women's is with an E and an S sports with an S foundation.org. Okay. And then, um, the social, uh, Twitter, it is women's sports FDN and then Facebook and Instagram, it's women's sports foundation. Okay. Um, you can also, they can also, if they want to provide monetary contributions, they can donate. Absolutely. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so we are a 501c3 nonprofit, um, really for the last, for more than 40 years have been advocating for gender equality at all levels of sports from the grassroots to professional sports. And it's from contributions from individuals, uh, you know, corporations, foundations from, from everyone who really make our work possible. So Great. donations are always appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, you and I have talked a bit about, we're going to try and, um, have some more of your, um, senior leadership on from time to time so that, yep. Um, all of our listeners can stay abreast of what's going on, learn how um, the various people at your organization got to where they are and, yeah. um, you know, maybe maybe help build a pipeline for you all as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am I'm going to ask you what I ask everyone at the end. What do you do by way of self-care? Um, you know, I've been putting a lot more thought into this recently, especially when we're getting, uh, into the throes of some of our bigger events, it gets a little crazy. Um, but I make sure that I carve out the time that I need to, to take care of myself. I've been, uh, actually joined kickboxing in November and have been going pretty regularly. Um, and that has been a really, um, great opportunity for me just to, it's a different type of physical activity that I haven't had. Um, and it's a really good workout. And for me, that, that helps me in all facets of my life when mm -hmm. I'm able to stay active. Um, so it's, it's about being intentional and it's about carving out the time and I'm not always successful. Um, but you know, making sure that I set aside the time I need to take care of myself is, is a huge part. That's great. I, um, I have a friend here who 
was like, you need to come to kickboxing with me. I think you're going to love it. I'm like, okay. But then like, (laughs) I haven't yet, but she's like, I feel like you need to kick the crap out of things. (laughs) I'm like, oh, do I come across that angry? Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had a friend who had been going for a long time and she always talked about it. And, you know, I just, I had tried CrossFit. I, you know, always just kind of went to the gym and did my own thing. And, then tried CrossFit. It wasn't really for me. And then finally it was like this, just relying on myself to go to the gym and, and get it done was not working. Um, and so I was like, you know what, let me do this kickboxing, give it a try. Um, and I'm lucky that where I am, there's a great gym in town that really is just a, a great community of people. Um, and so it's a, it's a really awesome experience, um, to, you know, have friends at the gym that go to the same, you know, seven thirty class, rush off the train, get to kickboxing change and, you know, um, get class in. So you see some of the same folks. So it's a, it's a good community of people. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. I think that's so important and it's so individual. I mean, yeah, you know, just like everything else, finding whatever it is that kind of lights you up, even if like it doesn't really light you up, but that, you know, that you, you will continue to do it because sometimes I think it's not about quote unquote motivation. It's just like, nope, this is what I do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And um, as a former competitive athlete to maintain that and like to continue to be active, I think is, is just so important to the structure of like your days and your mental health and things along that line. So I think that's yeah. great. Absolutely. I've been kind of lazy. I got to work on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to thank you so much for being on. Um, I have been uh, wanting to have somebody from your organization. I think you were perfect person to be our first. And I'm super excited to continue talking with you all to see how you know, my listeners and I can help in the mission and, um, you know, uh, making sure that we, we keep, uh, girls and women in sports. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a uh, great to start the conversation. I know we'll, we'll have many more conversations to follow. So we're excited to be a part of, uh, this podcast now, and I'm sure you'll hear from many of our other amazing leaders in the future. Big thank you to Sarah for coming on. I'm looking forward to having more women from the Women's Sports Foundation on the pod in the future. Don't forget to check us out on social, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're at LTPF pod and you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and tune in. Show notes are available at radioinfluence.com. And pretty, pretty please, would you give us a rating on whatever your podcatcher of choice is? It really helps new people to find us. And wouldn't it be a nice thing to do on this NGWSD? This episode was written and produced by myself, Bobby Doyle Hazard. Editing, audio engineering, and design were by Jerry Petuck at Radio Influence. And Leveling the Playing Field is part of the Radio Influence Network. is a Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy Quick Fix on Radio Influence. 
talking about the Mohegan Sun Wine and Food Festival that goes on like the last couple of days of January every year. It's an amazing event. They treat the chefs like full-blown rock stars. The guests that are coming in are unbelievable. The amount of food that you guys get to eat and booze and beer and wine is just unmatched. The events that they put on, it's a, it's, it's literally an experience. And I get to see my friends. Jason Santos is there. Chris Coombs is out there. Robert Siska's up there. Todd English, Bobby Flay, Aron Sanchez, Manit, Alex Garner-Shelley. They're all up there. It's a great time. We have a blast. Then I do my demo. This year, I did a New England-style Chipino. Chipino is an, uh, more or less an Italian-American seafood dish, kind of originated in San Francisco. I did mine a little bit different. I did a lobster gnocco frito which is like a pizza dough almost, a really nice dough. And on the inside, I stuffed it with boars and cheese and fresh mozzarella and some provolone cheese and some fresh herbs and salt and pepper. And I deep fry them in a little bit of duck fat. And the stew itself is just so simple. It's a lobster stock with a little bit of tomatoes in it. Seafood in there, you just braise it off. I put um, the octopus that I sous vide for a couple hours, sliced it down and threw them in so it still stays a little chunky. It was great. It was an awesome dish. My friend Chaney Barrio hopped up on stage with me. She was my demonstration partner. She hopped up and helped make the gnocco frito with me. It was awesome. I do a little question and answer. You guys know me. This is me. This is my my personality. I love getting in front of people and talking about food and all the stuff that I'm passionate about. I enjoy that stuff. There's a lot of guys that do what I do. We're traveling. We're always working. You know, we're doing different stuff, different media outlets and whatnot. And it's great for everybody to get together just for that one time and just hang out and have a couple cocktails and laugh. And that's what I enjoy. And that's what I did. And uh, that made me really happy. Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.